Hey, Stephen. What's up? You know that I love storytelling, like the concept of storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, as a writer, am also incredibly frustrated about endings, right? How do you wrap something up? How do you finish it? Yeah. It's a tricky wicket. Uh, writing and uh, gymnastics. Both cases, got to stick the landing. Stick the landing. Exactly. One of the other things we've had a hard time knowing when it's wrapped up is the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, not all of us, because uh, back in September on the 19th, President Joe Biden actually declared the pandemic to be over. Totally ended. The end of COVID. (laughs) And the media responded with a great flurry of basically indignation at the idea that it was over, threw out a lot of facts and figures about how, no, in fact, death rates are still much, much higher than the flu. And there's a lot of people still getting sick. So clearly it wasn't over. Yeah, and that's why they actually had to roll it back. Now, this emergency is still officially going to last through about mid-January 2023. And so all of this kind of had our heads swirling a bit. And we wanted to reach out to somebody who knows a thing or two about COVID-19. Yeah, so that's why we wanted to reach out to Dr. Bob Wachter. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He runs a department with about 1,000 physicians and another 500 trainees. So he's working on primary care, geriatrics, cardiology, oncology, palliative care, all of these big topics. And on top of that, he's also working on digital transformation for medicine, which is another whole crazy world. But you might know him, Stephen, as the doctor who became famous on Twitter for basically live tweeting the entire pandemic. Mm -hmm. He got in there and day in and day out with every little wrinkle in the pandemic, every new announcement from the CDC, he was telling us what was going on, what he thought it meant, interpreting it, synthesizing the information, and then giving us his spin on it. Not necessarily telling everyone what they should do, but telling everyone what he was going to do given the information he had. And so that made him kind of a Twitter hero. Yeah, he emerged as a trusted voice during a time when mis- and disinformation of all kinds were at an all-time high. Uh, We asked him about what the, quote, end of the pandemic might look like, or what does that term even mean to him? We talked to him about what it means to be a human and a doctor at the same time, how, how to meet people truly where they're at. And then we picked his brain for a moment about where we're at with COVID currently and what the future might look like. And also, we just talked about the nature of public storytelling in the 21st century. It's a great conversation. Here it is. Journal is a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Nice to see you guys. You too. Thank you so much for uh, doing this. We're really excited about it. Yeah, jump in. Tell us, tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm I'm Bob Wachter. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. So I tell people I'm I'm kind of a witch doctor. I tell people which doctor they should see. <laughs> and uh, and my research, you know, the writing and research I've done over the years is uh, important issues in medicine that impact the way we take care of patients. So that has led me to think about how we organize hospital care led me to do a lot of work in patient safety and medical mistakes, how they happen, how to do fewer of them. Uh, I've spent a lot of time the last seven or eight years thinking about technology and the technological transformation of medicine, partly why it's so bumpy. And then the last three years has pretty much been all COVID all the time. 
Now here we are in the fall of 2022. On September 19th, Joe Biden declared that the pandemic was more or less over, right? And that obviously grabbed a lot of headlines and drew the ire of many people on both sides. Um, and, and then just recently, they've sort of walked that back a bit and said that the the emergency itself will extend into January 2023. How did you feel when that news broke? And what does it mean for something to ever be over? Yeah, that's a really good question. I felt like it was a mistake in in that uh, it, it happened. He said it right about the time the new rejiggered vaccine was coming out. And just as a matter of sort of public communication, you would want to be encouraging people to get that vaccine and sort of a message that some people could interpret as, well, he's saying the, you know, that COVID's over and don't worry about it anymore would probably be counterproductive. And if more people don't take the new booster, I think more people are going to get COVID and more people are going to die of it. So I just, I thought as a, just as a matter of like, pragmatism is it is it going to serve any end that feels like it's useful it didn't strike me as as being a useful thing to say that said um you know it's just a word i mean it's in some ways very it's in some ways meaningless i mean what does it mean to be transitioning from a pandemic which basically implies that things are rapidly changing and are unpredictable to a very bad epidemic it's sort of, it's just, it really is just semantic. It's just a word. And at some point you do have to say, we're changing our mode from hair on fire. Things are changing incredibly rapidly. The threat is huge. We don't really understand all the aspects to, of this to something that just feels very different. And, uh, you know, we don't talk about, you know, there's no pandemic of heart disease or pandemic of cancer or pandemic but these are really important threats to public health that we pay a lot of attention to put resources into care and research and all that and so at some point he was gonna have to do that and it's it's similar in a way like at some point you're gonna travel and at some point you're gonna start eating indoors probably and at some point you're probably gonna take your mask off in certain circumstances and i think the idea that that point is around now that's not wacky you know, it does feel to me like really beginning a couple of months ago, we've reached a stage of stability and, and almost surprisingly, I think that, 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 you know, BA5, once it became a thing in the spring, things have been pretty darn stable for the last six months. There have been no real new surprises for about six months. And so the fact that a lot of people have gone back to living a version of normal is not an irrational decision on their part. I'm still a little more careful than that, in part because I think I know more, and um, and I still worry a lot about long COVID. But I do think we've reached a point where you kind of have to figure out how you're going to live your life for the long haul, because I think it's unlikely that COVID is going to get much better than it is now for the next several years. Could get somewhat worse, but you know the case rates are low enough that that this may be a version of kind of as good as it gets for a while and so we've got to sort of change our mindset to all right what does that look like what are reasonable precautions to take uh and what are things that you know you just can't be on hyper vigilance you know defcon 5 alert forever it just doesn't work uh, do you think that the landscape of just what we're seeing out in the world where there's you know if you go to an airport 
some number of people are always going to be wearing masks and many people are not. You go to a mall or restaurant or whatever, and you see masks sort of dotting the landscape, which I think is what a lot of people said at the very beginning. Like they said, well, this is the arc of this thing. And eventually there will be a point at which some people are masking and some people aren't. Do you think that's the way the future is going to look, at least for the foreseeable future, that there will just sort of be this constant reminder that COVID is with us? Or do you think that it will cycle out a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's going to cycle out. It depends whether we see another big surge. Um, In the absence of a big surge, and I mean, we're certainly going to see small surges, and we're probably going to see one this winter where cases go up. But if we don't see a big hospitals are overwhelmed, you know, people who are really sick and in the hospital kind of kind of surge. I think there's sort of a natural ebb and flow of things that people have the ability to maintain vigilance for a given threat for only so long. And then they move on in part because other threats uh, come and replace them. I, I, w- I did an interview on MSNBC a couple of weeks ago and the anchor Mehdi Hassan showed me a, a poll that had just come out showing like which threats the public was most concerned about. And like number one was the threat to democracy and number two was inflation. Number three was climate. Number four was guns. And I said, those are pretty bad things. I'm worried about those too. And maybe I'd probably say I'm more worried about the threat to democracy than I am about COVID today. And then he pointed out COVID was polling at 1% and other was polling at 4%. <laughs> I said, you got me there. It should it, it should still be better than other. <laughs> other is a pretty big catch. Other is a big catcher. There may be things in other. Yeah, other there may be things in other you agree with. But it, it just says that. And I remember talking to John Barry, who wrote The Great Influenza, and you know, sort of this, this wonderful book looking at the influenza pandemic of 1918. And he said, same thing happened after about two years. There, there does seem to be a shelf life of how long people can remain mm-hmm. super vigilant about any given threat when it's probably our biology, it just sort of kicks in and says, you got to sort of calm down, it's too much stress. And then it gets replaced by other things you're worried about. So I think that we are likely to, it depends on where you live in the region of the country, clearly, you know, I go visit, visit my mother in Florida and very hard to find anybody with a mask. But in the Bay Area where I live, you know, you're going to see people with masks, you're going to see people without masks, some of that will be related to their level of caution and the way they think about their life. Some of that will be related to their own individual risk factors that, you know, someone who's older or immunosuppressed probably should be wearing a mask where someone isn't. For me, you know, if you saw me in the safe way, uh, you'd see me wearing a mask because it's like, why should I take any risk at all? I don't want to talk to anybody here. There's there's a non-zero risk. The person standing next to me in line has COVID. Feels like this would be kind of a stupid place to get COVID and why do it? when the cost of being safer is wearing a mask for half an hour. It just feels like a no big deal. Why not? On the other hand, if you, you may see me in an indoor restaurant. Now, I'm, I, if I have a choice, I'll still eat in outdoor because it's a little bit safer. But the case rate is now low enough that I'm willing to take a small risk for something I find very pleasurable in a way that I wouldn't have when the case rate is higher. And so you're going to just see the results of, and I have a lot of people who follow me on, on Twitter, who just say like, tell me what you're doing. This is too mm-hmm. complicated. I can't live my life weighing the odds of this, the probability of this, the ventilation in the Whole Foods, blah, 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 blah. Just tell me what you're doing. You seem like a reasonably bright, trustworthy guy. I'll do that. So, you know, that's I find that flattering and I think is a real responsibility. When you're thinking about how to share the 
various different things that you're working on. Is all of that stuff considered free game for, for Twitter? Or is there things that areas that you don't get into? You know, I, uh, prior to COVID, I was on Twitter. I had 15 or 20,000 followers. I kind of tweeted about the things that were interesting to me. And that was a lot about health technology, a lot about sort of academic medicine, a fair amount about patient safety. I also use it as a little bit of a platform to promote my department. Um, and then when COVID hit, um, I mean, my origin story in Twitter for COVID was basically in mid-March 2020, I was uh, on my computer all day long, hiding on, you know, under my kitchen table and um, taking in an immense amount of information. And you know, no, none of us knew what this was about. And we were learning every single day about the science and the trying to come up with policies. But interestingly, I found I didn't have that much to do because basically UCSF, like every healthcare organization, went to a weird form of martial law where about four people were designated as the command center to make all decisions. And so as the chair of the biggest department, I was considered someone who needed to be in the loop. So I was getting, taking in all this info, but really didn't have, you know, we weren't going to hire anybody. We weren't firing anybody. It was, you know, there was no new initiatives. It was just like survival mode. And I said, huh, this is interesting. I have access to some of the world's great experts in the various things that are relevant to COVID. And I have access to some information that most people don't have in terms of how many cases we're seeing. And I think on March 18th, 2020, I just tweeted, here's what I'm seeing. And I was maybe five or six Twitter threads in a tweet. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's why. Here's what's going on. And I'll keep doing it if people seem interested. And the little like button, it's like in the movies, like it started spinning around like nothing I've ever seen before. And it just became clear to me there's, you know, obviously a huge amount of interest. I am a generalist in that I'm not the world's expert on virology or immunology or aerosol science. But I kind of suspected that A, that people would be intensely interested in this, B, stuff is stuff would change very quickly and it would be people would be looking to try to keep up and C, that there was a role for people like me who were not the world's expert on any of the individual facets, but were pretty good at synthesizing all of it and knew enough about the big picture that they could make sense of it and, and put it together and then put it out there for public dissemination. And the more I did of it, the more people seemed to find it valuable. So I just kept doing it. One thing that the pandemic has asked a, a very large group of people to do is to embrace certain gray areas within their decision making and to sort of hold two possible truths at the same time. Right. You make me think of a question that I've been wanting to ask you, which is in certain regions of the country, precautions are going to be lower. Those are usually connected to political affiliations and cultural leanings, etc. You as a person, you're sort of tasked with creating, with storytelling um, around this public health issue. So how, how do you do your job knowing that facts will inevitably be distorted based on the person who's hearing them? Right. You know, how can public health measures exist in a in the climate in which we found ourselves as a society? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly hard. Um, I have tried. First of all, I'm not we, the, the media landscape, including the social media landscape, is such an unbelievable echo chamber at this point. There is nobody who's anti-vax or profoundly anti-mask who's following me. I'm not, I'm just not convinced that I'm talking to them. They have other channels that will more than fill up their day. 
They are choosing to get their news from other people, other sources. And God bless them. I hope they do well. I think they're I think they're taking risks that I personally wouldn't take and that I wouldn't recommend. I think they're getting information that's wrong. But there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is do what I do the best that I can. And I think the people that follow me probably think about life in the same way I do. Uh, they may not follow exactly what I do lockstep, but, but you know, the lane I've tried to occupy is that of a credible sort of credentialed, and I don't just mean my own personal credentials, but I work for a terrific and very well-respected healthcare delivery organization, um, physician expert, who is a, you know, one of the things I've tried to do is be human and to say, I'm scared about this too, or here's what I do, or here's what happened to my wife with her permission, or what happened to my son, uh, here's how I'm thinking about this, who's tried not to be super moralistic, like, you know, you're not a bad person if you choose not to mask. I just think you're making a bad decision in certain cases. You're not a bad person if you choose not to get vaccinated. I think you're, I think it's a bad call. But without any more kind of moral attachment yeah. to that than, the person who chooses not to take their blood pressure medicine or their cancer therapy. You know, it's a, it's a choice. To my mind, the benefits of this thing outweigh the risks. Here's why. Here's the math. Here's the science. I've been wrong before. Things change very quickly. I mean, one of the things about COVID that's been so interesting and challenging is you can find examples of times where everybody's been wrong because the, you know, the science changes. And if that then becomes fodder for, look, you can't believe that person or that person's an idiot. Mm. that, you know, we're screwed. And that, that has happened to some degree. I'm pretty careful to, I don't remember saying to people, you must do this, or even all that often saying you should do this. I sort of say, here's what I think the benefits and risks are, and here's what I'm doing. You know, kind of, I mean, do what you want in a way. And um, I've been impressed that the amount of guff I've gotten on Twitter and social media has been reasonably benign. I mean, when I put stuff out there now, much more so than a year ago, there is clearly a bunch of either humans or bots that immediately like, oh, there's Bob again. You can't believe a word he says. It's sort of, and I just, I pay no attention to it. It's just to me, uh, you know, they're using my platform and my you know number of uh, followers to get across a point of view that I completely disagree with. But I'm hoping that people are there to listen to me and not listen to them. Uh, there have been times where they've gotten a little bit nasty, but never horrible. And I certainly have lots of friends who, have, for whom it's been a much more challenging experience. I think some of that is related to race and gender. I think as a white guy, I've gotten less, uh, less bad stuff coming back at me than people saying similar things who are not white guys. Um, some of it has been people who've taken more controversial points of view or have been a little bit edgier than I have, I think have been taken more backlash. But I remember the first time I saw this was when my younger son got COVID and I, and with his permission, I tweeted the experience and on day seven or eight, he was still testing positive, which means to me, he's still infectious. And the CDC had just come out and said, five days, you're good to go. You know, don't, you can leave isolation. So I tweeted something and I said, I showed his test, a picture of his test. And I said, you know, I love him to pieces, but I wouldn't want to hug him today. And people said, you are such a, you fill in the curse, parent. You know, I can't believe that. <laughs> There's nothing my child could have that would make me not want to hug, hug him. And I'm thinking like, first of all, he's got a potentially fatal infectious disease. <laughs> and second of all, he's 28. He's not two. Like I can go a week without <laughs> hugging him. You know, it's okay. He'll live. I'll live. <laughs> 
but you know, I've learned long time ago, you just don't, you don't reply mm. to that stuff because it's mm. a no-win situation. I think the point you make about trying to remove the moral judgment from that is so important. I'm certain that that had a lot to do with um, how well-respected you are in the space because something happened in the past, you know, two and a half years where public health and the advice of a doctor somehow got all intertwined with whether or not you're a good person suddenly. Yeah. And, and I think your approach, I think, is so effective because you go out and you just put out the information. You say, this is what I would do. And I really liked that. I never thought about that before, that you wouldn't judge someone as a bad person because they didn't take their blood pressure medicine. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I appreciate I appreciate that. I, it's an interesting tension in medicine because, you know, we're trained not to judge people, but we're humans. And the person who doesn't take their blood pressure medicine because they can't afford it, um, you know, we I, I, I'd be lying to you say to say if I if it never crossed my mind to look at that person differently than the person who has emphysema and keeps smoking or the person who's, you know, has, uh, you, you know, take, uh, drinks a lot of alcohol and it's my fifth time taking care of in the emergency room with a version of the same problem. So we're always in this sort of tension between sort of moral judgments and not, but I think, you know, one of the things that happens as a physician is you train yourself to try to do as little as possible of that. And that even when you find yourself doing it to park it in a distant corner of your brain, and to say this person deserves my best possible care. And, you know, so I've tried to, do, and I think, so my background as a physician sort of helps with that. I do think the moral piece is tricky because I think early on when vaccination worked incredibly well in terms of preventing COVID and masking worked incredibly well in terms of preventing transmission, um, there was some, you know, there was people who chose not to wear a mask, chose not to be vaccinated, actually were putting other people at risk. And, you know, it's one thing to put yourself at risk. It's another person, another thing to put, you know, a vulnerable 80 year old or someone who happens to be next to you on the bus who's who's uh, who's immunosuppressed at risk. So, I mean, there was I, I, I'd be kidding if I said I wasn't pissed at them. Um, but I think the situation today is feels very different, that people really have the capacity to keep themselves safe with vaccines, with boosters, with masking, you know, when appropriate. And it's this is it becomes more normalized. It becomes more like, all right, you're making a risk benefit decision. If you choose not to get the booster, I think that's the wrong call. I think you're putting yourself at higher risk than you should be. I can you know, this whole thing's gotten so politicized that uh, that has some influence. but. I do think that we need to move to normalize this and treat this the way we do other disorders. And uh, and so thank you. Anyway, thanks for your comments. Kind of building on what Stephen was saying earlier about your ability to balance the sort of professional level of information that you're synthesizing and the caveat that like I'm one person, this is what I think based on my kind of informed position, here's what I'm going to do, take with that what you will. When I was reading that over the last couple of years, I thought Bob has done something remarkable that people haven't really talked about enough, and that is he's actually figured out how to use Twitter. <laughs> no one else has quite figured out how to do it, and it it reminded me of like the early early days of Twitter, when it would be like somebody go on and say, "Just ate a sandwich," or you know, "Just watched a movie," or "Just yeah. got out of the bathroom," or whatever. Except yours is like dealing with a pandemic, but it was still that same kind of, you know. Uh, speaking about a state of the world, talking about your personal, your personal role in it, and 
talk about the kind of evolution of Bob Walker, uh, Twitter doctor, <laughs> and and sort of how that built up and, and kind of from that, you know, as you're growing your following, as you were learning this kind of way of storytelling, way of interaction, what were some of the things you learned? What was what was that experience like for you? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I. You know, I've I've had the advantage of writing professionally a lot for my for medicine, which is kind of boring and not a storytelling kind of mode, but also having written three kind of crossover books where I had to speak to lay audiences, and you realize it's all about the storytelling, and if it's not interesting, they'll you know they'll close it in ten seconds. So, I I've kind of learned a little bit of that skill and the importance of it. I've also learned it in my leadership role. I mean, I. When I became chair of a, you know, one of the great departments in an academic medical center, you know, five years ago, it was a little bit of like, how the hell did this happen? Because when I think about people in this job in the old, old days, they had this incredible gravitas and they were kind of scary and imposing. And I'm a little bit of a goofball and I like trying to be funny on a good day. And I kind of learned that leadership in today's world is much more about authenticity and accessibility. And if you don't cultivate that and i don't mean in a madison avenue kind of silly way but if you don't let people see you and 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 uh uh then you, you it's hard to gain their trust uh because they see you as an autom automaton or they just don't think you're you're being honest with them and in COVID, i thought it was very important for people to really kind of believe that you're an honest broker you care about them uh and to do that without sort of exposing your own fears, your own situation and how you're, I mean, early on, my father was dying and was on hospice. Uh, and I had to figure out, do I fly to Florida to see him? And I just thought exposing that struggle would be incredibly valuable. I thought, you know, how do I, as someone who actually knows a fair amount about the virus and has access to the world's great experts on this, how do I think about that decision? And for other people, they were having versions of the same decision. I think it helped create a relationship between me and them that I couldn't have possibly done by just sort of, you know, in a, in a vanilla way, just putting out the facts and the data and the, you know, the pluses and the minuses. So I, you know, I decided early on when I was on Twitter, I mean, I'm barely on Facebook other than to, to follow my kids. I, you know, I, early on, I said, nobody cares what I had for breakfast. Um, hmm. And yet I also felt like if I want people to follow me, whatever value that has, I think having people see you as a real human has has real value. So that's that's walking a fine line. Now, I said nobody wants to know what I had for breakfast. But one of my tweets that went really viral was pretty early in the pandemic, must have been April or May. One day I'm sitting at home, overwhelmed, scared, and I had SpaghettiOs and double stuffed Oreos for lunch. And I took a picture of the two of them. I said, I just, it felt like I had to do this. So here I am tweeting what I had for lunch. But people sort of saw that as like, I feel the same, you know, I won't eat that badly, but I feel the same way. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so it became clear to me that, and also just, you know, you know, when my son who works in for the Atlanta Braves, you know, won the World Series and tweeting him in his World Series ring visiting the White House. I don't want that to be the bulk of what I do, but letting people see that you're a real human, um, I think is helpful. And I think it's part of the part of the 
the, the, the sort of, if you want people to follow you and trust you, having them understand that you're a human and struggling with some of the same issues that they are, I think is helpful and trying to get that balance right is tricky, but it feels, it, this all feels pretty good. Certainly. Well, and the flip side of that is, like you said earlier, some people just say, I don't have time to parse all this stuff. Bob, just tell me what to do. And the fact that you became an authority, all of the thing that's unsaid there is that the authority had failed. Like that accessible voice that made things clear for people wasn't coming from anywhere else. Well, I, I, yeah, I think that that's partly true, but partly it was impossible for any entity to be an authority on whether you should eat indoors because, yeah. you know, the CDC sitting in Atlanta, they would have to figure out, you know, you and your age and your risk factors and your risk tolerance and your vaccine status and, you know, you name it and how much COVID is in your community. That's just an impossible job to customize that for everyone. Now, I don't think they did a great job. I think they could have done a better job at communicating sort of how to even think about this and and presenting tools to people to help them think that through. But I, I think that's a lot to ask for a federal agency to be able to speak to an individual sitting, you know, at home trying to decide, do I get on an airplane today? You know, different people are going to make different judgments and they have a different audience than I had. And, you know, I mean, the fact that people were choosing to follow what I did was was flattering and rational at some level. But I what I was hoping for, not necessarily following lockstep what I did, but sort of see in a transparent way, how did I think through this problem? And yeah. for some of them, even doing that, even though they would have been well within their rights since they're much younger than I am, for example, to say, I'm not going to be quite as careful as as he is, to sort of see how at least I process the the equation. And for some of them, it just turned out to be, you know, yeah, I could become a little more nuanced about this, but it would be solving a, you know, nine, nine variable multivariate equation. It's just easier just to follow what he's doing. And I now trust that he's a legit guy who seems to know what he's talking about and, and, uh, and has some of the same hopes and fears that I do and some of the same pleasures. And, you know, it seemed like an expedient for some people to just say, all right, just tell me what to do. Certainly. And you haven't tried to sell anybody an NFT or, no. No. or vitamins or any of that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm pretty, pretty careful about, you know, what I try to, and I'm not trying to sell them, but I try to stay within a lane that I'm very comfortable in. And I also recognize, you know, as soon as I say you should take Paxlovid, you know, there's a whole world of, you know, there's a Greek chorus out there. Oh, you must have some relationship with Pfizer. So I, you know, I've been very, very careful about those sort of conflicts and encumbrances, and and I've got really none that are relevant to COVID, and that's quite purposeful. I really didn't want to lose credibility. Yeah, I think that um, that the idea that you are a human being, you know, that is providing this very highly scientific medical information, uh, was super key because one thing that happened and continues to happen during this sort of COVID era is that we're watching science happen in real time. We're watching the imperfection and the constantly evolving state of science happen, you know, live, yeah. right? Your use of Twitter also to me seems like an extension of something that you've also been super focused on over the past decade or so, which is the digital transformation of medicine in general. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... I think that the public has gotten to see inside the sausage factory of how science is created and how there are honest disagreements about 
you know, what this means and that sometimes something that was true last week is not true next week. I'd say the difference, first of all, there's never been an issue that had, that everybody in the world cared deeply about in real time and never an issue that I can think of in my world of science where the change has been this rapid. So, you know, yeah, they could see how the science changes in the way we think about treating heart failure. And what they would see is every year or two, the paradigm shifts and it gets published in the New England Journal of Medicine and we, the physicians talk about in conferences and now we change the way we think about, do we do a certain test or use a certain medicine? There's never been anything that's changed like on a daily basis where if I made slides to give a talk today and I'm giving a talk tomorrow, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna have to go back and redo half of them. And, and therefore, because of that, the speed of, of, of our publication apparatus, peer review, medical literature, publish in a journal, no, did not work and, and couldn't work. And so it, I mean, one of the things that I have loved about Twitter during COVID is, is almost forgetting about myself as a, as a disseminator of information analysis. Twitter has been unbelievably valuable for me to keep up that, you know, there's just no way that I could keep up with the fire hose of new information that might be coming out in a journal, might be presented orally at a conference, might be presented by somebody on Twitter or in a press release. And what did I do? I followed 20 or 30 people who I respect, who I knew were following different lines of thinking. You know, I just can't follow the literature about aerosol science. So I find two or three people who that's what they do for a living. And you know, when COVID moves on, I'm probably going to unfollow them because I have no interest in our science, <laughs> except to the degree it influences how we think about well, COVID. You, you don't have to tell them that now. You can wait, <laughs> yeah. wait a little I, bit. <laughs> yeah, probably I should wait until it's, you know, we truly are moving on. But I, and I'm sure the same thing will happen to them, you know, me to them. But so, yes, I, it, it proved to be unbelievably valuable as a way of having a kind of distilled, you know, getting into the brains of people who are in each of these lanes. And that was one of the things to me that was fun about COVID and, 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 and I hate to say nothing was fun about COVID, but was fun at my position of being a generalist who tries to think about it as I realized, and I'm very used to this because it happened when I got into health technology, happened when I got into patient safety. My lane was going to be someone who saw the big picture, understands the way medicine works, understands the way the government kind of works, but was not the world's expert on the 10 different sub threads that you had to really understand but my world was going to be understanding enough of it and then pulling it together and synthesizing it. And there's, you know, that's important skill. And so is to be the world's expert in vaccinology. So it, Twitter proved to be a very valuable way of, of getting absolutely up to the minute information. It also proved to be an incredible misinformation disseminator and an incredibly fertile place for bullying and obnoxious behavior. And I wish somebody smarter than me could figure out how to get rid of the bad and keep the good. I mean, I think net it's positive. I think net that the ability of, I hope people like me and others to get the word out in real time to a lot of people for whom that's valuable um, and the ability of me to follow Eric Topol or follow Bill Hanage or follow, um, uh, Megan Ranney or Ashish Jha or you know, any of these other people and see what these incredibly smart people who are following different parts of the pandemic are seeing has so much value, value that, the, the, you know, that the downside, the side effect of all the nastiness and the bullying and all that, 
I think it's still net positive. And then you have to figure out ways of how do you mitigate the nasty stuff. And that's an ongoing challenge. So, Bob, you coined a term, which is hospitalist, um, which is a kind of fascinating, almost like a meta category, I guess, of of the medical industry. And it's one uh, one to ask you how you came up with it and what it means, and also how COVID and the last couple of years in which hospitals were tested in kind of unique ways, how that changed the definition and changed this this uh category. Yeah, I mean, the, the brief story of hospitalists is that in the old, old days in the United States, the traditional model of, of care in hospitals was the expectation that your primary care doctor would be in charge of your care if you got hospitalized. And you can see why that would be somewhat attractive if you know your primary care doctor for years and years and like him or her, and now you're really sick, it would be nice to have that continuity. And then you get discharged and the person who took care of you in the hospital now takes care of you back again in the clinic. Sounds good. Problem is it can't work. It's that doctor has a different job from eight to six, was seeing patients every 15 minutes, can't possibly be in the hospital all day long, oversee your care, hospital care is complicated, a premium on time and moving things along quickly. So my epiphany was that the that it just wasn't going to work, that we needed a new specialty that was a generalist who'd be comfortable taking care of people with pneumonia and gastrointestinal bleeding maybe heart attacks, maybe strokes, um, who could be your orchestra conductor in the hospital. And so it's basically a generalist specialty created essentially by the site of care. And that's not a novel concept in medicine. That's if you think about the evolution of emergency medicine as a field and critical care medicine, both domains that didn't have a medical specialty in the very beginning 50 years ago, eventually we said, oh, we need a doctor who lives in the ER. We need a doctor who lives in the intensive care unit. So to me, the aberration was the rest of the hospital hadn't done that. It has now it's became the fastest growing specialty in history. Very proud of it because I think that by and large, it has improved the quality of hospital care, the accessibility of doctors in the hospital. And had it not been invented prior to COVID, it would have had to have been invented in COVID because the major providers of hospital care in the country now are these doctors called hospitalists. And if they hadn't existed, there is no way in a million years that your primary care doctor would have and could have come into the hospital to take care of a really sick and infectious hospitalized patient. So it's continuing to uh, to grow and evolve, but I, I think that it's an example of, you know, our healthcare system doesn't evolve that quickly, but this was an area where it was clearly a need. I think this was a better idea and a better mousetrap. And it evolved you know, pretty quickly and grew incredibly uh, rapidly in a way that's been, been really very satisfying. Talk a little bit about where medicine might go in the next couple of years. I mean, I think the big innovation, again, during the pandemic was, oh, uh, telehealth. Uh, that's a that's a mm -hmm. technology that was sort of a long time coming. Yeah, and the use of I'm sure massive amounts of unprecedented data on this yeah. sort of crisis were collected too. It's all more hype than real at this point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the big the big transformation over the last ten or fifteen years in medicine was that we all, both in clinics and in hospitals, went to electronic medical records. So all of the data now are in digital form, whereas fifteen years ago they were on pieces of paper. Uh, in charts and being faxed and there were post-it notes and it was craziness. I was on Google's healthcare advisory board in 2006-7 when Google said, we're Google, healthcare is 20% of the GDP, really important. It's the second most common thing people search for after sex. Uh, we need to do, do healthcare. 
So they put together this advisory board. Two years after we started, Eric Schmidt came into the room and said, we're taking it down. This is too hard for us. I said, hmm. whoa, that must be pretty hard. And, and the reason was when all of the data were in paper form, there was nothing Google could do. So now hmm. the big transformation is all the data are in digital form. So there is something Google can do, Amazon can do, Apple can do, you name it. The problem is it is a non-trivial problem moving from having the data in digital form to actually transforming the way you deliver care. And I wrote a book five or six years ago about how bumpy the ride was. So who would have guessed that the fastest growing profession in medicine was these people called scribes? When you went into a patient's a doctor, went in to take care of a patient, in many practices, there's actually now a third person in the room to basically type into the computer so the doctor can actually look the patient in the eye again. I mean, who would have guessed that? Who would have guessed that when you ask doctors about their level of burnout, it's higher than it's ever been. And when you ask them why, they will talk about their computers. And why is that? Because the average doctor, primary care doctor, now sees patients for eight or nine hours a day and then has two or three more hours of digital work to do at night. Some of it is to finish up on the charting, but a lot of it is to deal with incoming messages from patients because the patients have been given this patient portal. So that's nice. But have not been given the wherewithal to manage their care digitally. So they get a message. When we do a lab test on a patient, they get the lab test result the same time I do. And so it says your magnesium is low. Your electrocardiogram is normal. And the patient says, what the hell does that mean? That's scary. And there's this little button that says, message your doctor. And so they click a little <laughs> message to the doctor. So their doctor now has a thousand messages to answer. All, you know, it, it's, un, it's undoable. So we're in this really funky zone where we've partially digitized medicine, but not yet built up the ecosystem and the tools to manage all the data. Mm. And we will. So, you know, when Brandon said, what is it like in two years? In two years, it's like what it is today. This is a 10 or 15 year mm. huge shift. You need new companies to come into the space to figure this out. You need the companies to build tools that then get integrated into the electronic health record, because if the doctors or the patients are going to have to go sign on to some other thing, as opposed to it's all seamless in one tool. And eventually, you know, I mean, when I go onto Fidelity's website, I know I never have to talk to a person because it's going to do everything I need. But when you go onto the electronic websites that we have in medicine, you're not there yet. I think yeah. we'll get there. I think AI will help. But this is a 10, 15, maybe 20 year journey because medicine's complicated. Fail fast works fine when you're building a restaurant app. Doesn't work so good if you kill somebody. The privacy laws are tough. The regu regulations are tough. When a digital company comes in and they say, oh, you know, I built so and so in this other field, I say, you know, get ready because A, it's harder in a hundred different ways, but also physicians are much better lobbyists than taxi cab drivers. There's a lot of the incumbents in medicine that have a lot of power and will fight back. So there's just a lot of reasons this is much tougher than it looks and tougher than other industries. But I'm actually very enthusiastic about it. It's just not a two year uh, thing. It's a 10 mm. to 15 year thing. So that's the future of digital medicine. What about this COVID thing? Where are we at today, this afternoon, with regard to COVID, the incoming variants, et cetera? And what does the future of society sort of living alongside this virus look like? Well, this afternoon, where I am in the Bay Area in San Francisco is the amount of COVID in the environment is really, really low. It's not zero, but low enough 
that if it was cold and windy out and I was wanted to have dinner with my kids uh, in a restaurant, I would be comfortable eating indoors with them. If it wasn't cold and windy out, I'd prefer to do it outside because I feel like why take any risk and the risk is not zero. I think now is a version of the few of the best the future will look like for the next several years. It's it, when I look at the forces that will make COVID worse and the forces that will make COVID better. I would say if I was a betting person, I would say the forces that will make it worse are stronger than ones that will make it better. Um, and but I don't think much worse. Forces, what are those forces? The forces are sort of a continuous stream of new variants that are a little bit worse, probably not game-changing worse the way Omicron was, but a little bit worse than the current ones. And probably the main one, I sometimes liken this to the painting of the Golden Gate Bridge. The main one is if you could get everybody vaccinated and boosted or infected like today, you'd say, wow, we've got such a high level of immunity, we're in good shape. The problem is every day from now on, they're gonna start losing their immunity. And you know, two months from now, the immunity they got from their booster will begin waning. It, you should still get your booster because it will help protect you from dying. But the immunity you got from your booster will begin waning. And if you don't get another one, uh, you know, three, four, five, six months from now, you are more vulnerable than you were today. So once you've, and, and because people are, feel safer than they used to, you know, very few people are being careful. Very few people are wearing masks. So I think, you know, if, I think today's situation in terms of the risk, in terms of your own behavior is probably similar to the situation that you'll face a year or two from now. My biggest worry is long COVID. My biggest worry is that people are sort of saying I'm over COVID and that's not irrational. If you're vaccinated and boosted, the chances you're gonna die of COVID are close to zero, but it is irrational because if you get infected, there's a small but real chance you'll still feel crummy four months from now and a small but real chance that you've, you've raised your probability of a heart attack, stroke, diabetes, dementia significantly. So that's just a lot for people to take in and weigh and people are exhausted and want to get back to real life. What it says to me is I'm perfectly comfortable doing everything I used to do, but I still want to stay up to date with my boosters and I still want to wear a good mask when I'm in a crowded indoor space, uh, unless there's a good reason to take it off, which there might be if I'm with you know close friends and family eating eating inside. So that's the situation. And I think, you know, and it could get worse if, if variants get worse or if people are so over it that everybody just stops taking uh, taking their boosters, which seems to be the case. You know, relatively few people have gotten the new one, which I think is a mistake. And what are you going to eat this afternoon? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> what's not what's not, the risk? Uh, well, I have yeah. a birthday tomorrow and we'll go to a nice to a nice restaurant. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the, sort of the quality of the food. It really has to do with all else equal, I'd rather eat outside. But if all else is not equal, and the only way to get together with friends and family is to be inside in a in a closed space, as long as the case rates are low, I'm comfortable doing it and not believing that my risk of getting COVID is zero, but believing that a small risk is worth it. I'm gonna wear a mask on an airplane forever. I just, I'm gonna wear a mask in the safe way, you know, when I go shopping forever. It just feels like even if the risk is one in a thousand, like why put yourself at any risk at all for an activity where taking the mask off has really, really no benefit whatsoever. I don't want to talk to anybody on the airplane. I don't want to eat anything on the airplane. The food stinks. So I'm <laughs> sort of being thoughtful about when is the risk worth it? And that'll change if the risk goes up. Right now, the case rate is quite low. 
as it goes up, my risk-benefit equation may may change again. And when it does, I will tweet about it. We'll look for it. Yep. Well, thank you, Dr. Bob Walker of UCSF. My pleasure. Uh, we really yeah. appreciate you talking to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Oh, uh, and give Bob a follow on Twitter. You can find him at Bob underscore Walker. Also, Journos is produced by Brandon R. Reynolds and Stephen Jackson.